Hello and welcome to Hey, Remember the 80s? I'm Joe. I'm Carrie. Hello, everybody. Welcome to an exciting edition. And I say that because Carrie and I are in the same room at the same time again. It's a rarity for this show and for life. We're having fun. Now, remember, we're not professional podcasters or music critics. We are just a bunch of long distance lines talking about 80s music. So give us a break. Yeah. So let me tell you about our Facebook right up top, which is facebook.com slash HRT80S, or just search for Hey Remember the 80s. There's always some cool stuff happening there. And we want to shout out some of our loyal listeners. Joe, where are we shouting out this week? Well, we found out we have some listeners in High Point, North Carolina. Elwood City, Pennsylvania, and Rusendal, Netherlands. Again, someone has it out for me. Rusendal. I like that. Carrie, you have an update on polls for us? Yes, we had one poll that we ran the week after our last episode. It's been a while. Jeez. So we asked you what number one from 1982 you preferred because we had gone back in time to take a look at different number ones. So we pitted the adult contemporary number one, Break It To Me Gently by Juice Newton against Dirty Laundry by Don Henley. And Joe, I won't make you read the results. Dirty Laundry won with 75%. That's a blowout. I uh, I don't know what to say. I forgot to follow the poll. So I think when I looked, it was tied or maybe even Juice was winning. So this is a tough this is pill to swallow. <laughs> yes. I'm a little shocked by how lopsided it was. I think maybe people are just not familiar with that Juice Newton song, but... You know, to each his own, I guess, as we always say with these polls. You're right. She's kind of forgotten. I don't think many people (laughs) do know that song. But I will tell you, if I haven't already, this magical dinner party that my friend had and we were all outside and it was the stars were shining and I took over the sound system and put on (laughs) Juice Newton's The Sweetest Thing I've Ever Known. Mm -hmm. And when it got to the chorus, everyone burst into song and sang along. And it was like my best friend's wedding. (laughs) Except our friend Kyle, who's much younger, he was like, I've never heard this song in my life. (laughs) That is astounding, Joe. You know, you don't think that Juice could bring people Mm -mm. together like that. But, you know, I guess she reaches across time and class and (laughs) gender. She's everything. I guess that was a tidbit. So we're in the tidbits portion now, right? Yeah, I guess so. I don't have any other tidbits to share. Really? No. How did the wedding go? Oh, the wedding was very wonderful. It was beautiful. There is a picture on our Facebook page of me recreating the scene from Say Anything as we discussed in the episode where we suggested some songs for Jennifer's playlist. And I heard uh, quite a number of those songs on the playlist. So she took our advice. It was wonderful. Good. Well, I forgot to mention maybe um, we forgot the most perfect 80s wedding song would have been White Wedding by Billy Idol. (laughs) Did she play that? I don't think so. No. Didn't hear that one. Yeah. All right, Joe. Well, let's move into our review section because we have quite a few and I've been promising you several reviews for weeks and weeks and weeks and I can finally report back. So I'm going to start with my review of I Want My MTV. was a documentary ostensibly based on the 2011 oral history book by Craig Marks and Rob 
Tannenbaum. I will remind you that I saw this at the Milwaukee Film Festival, and I did not care for it, Joe. <laughs> That's very surprising to me. I mean, this is something we've brought up in multiple episodes, mm-hmm. how reading the book was, I mean, it was just so much information, and it was great. And your problem was, if they make a documentary, what am I going to hear in the movie that I didn't already learn from the book? I think that was your first question about it when it was announced. Yes, that is true. I think I even said to you, I'm like, well, why do I need to hear these stories told on camera when I already read them? And you made the point at that time, you're like, well, I want to see what these people look like, (laughs) like the network executives. And you would be fulfilled by that part Mm -hmm. of the movie because there are interviews with many of the behind the scenes executives. But I guess overall, for me, the problem was, first of all, it focused more on the history of the channel and how it came to be which could be really interesting but it was so short that they just couldn't get into anything like it was a little bit longer than 90 minutes so I kind of wonder like well why didn't they take some time to get a little deeper on some of these issues and the book itself I remember being more or maybe I just remember those parts better because it was what I was interested in but like specific stories about videos and this just very much took sort of like a very high level look at how the network came to be then not really even getting into the meat of it because they didn't have time so it's like they'd talk they'd mention something that you're like oh that sounds interesting but then they'd never go anywhere with it like the one segment that really bothered me too was they had this segment on black artists and I guess I would just say that it was really dismissive like they didn't acknowledge the role that MTV had in keeping black videos off the air or not being more encouraging I guess to you know have black artists create videos because basically what the MTV executives that were interviewed said about it were they kind of just blamed the record companies and were like well if they didn't make the videos we couldn't play them and it's kind of like well Mm -hmm. I mean you had this whole documentary is about how this network exploded and had all this influence all of a sudden and then they're just really kind of trying to pass the buck like well we didn't have any control over that and we had nothing to do with what videos were being made and blah 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 so wanted to hear a lot more about that and really was kind of disappointed in how it was handled so I guess overall Joe I think it was just a little bit too short and superficial for me I mean I think that if you have any interest at all in 80s music or MTV I think it's worth watching just because there's probably one or two things that you will hear about that you didn't know overall I was just very disappointed in it and probably had very high expectations that could have never been met but (laughs) there you go that's true you've read the book i mean we do this every week so yeah i'm sure that you were hoping for like explosive information and it sounds (laughs) like it didn't deliver yeah i should have asked nick nick my husband went with me and um i mean i asked him for his review afterwards and i think he said he liked it i should have asked him some more specific questions because maybe a casual more casual 80s fan or more casual uh, viewer would would be really entertained by this but didn't meet my criteria Now, let me ask you this, because I really don't know. I didn't know what to expect with the documentary. I still don't. Um, I had imagined with all the interviews they did, did they interview any of the 80s artists who were making groundbreaking videos or really using MTV as a a platform? There were artists included. I remember seeing them, but I honestly couldn't tell you anything that they said. Uh, Well, did they at least talk to maybe the people behind the videos for those people, like the directors or, you know, who really 
No, I don't remember any directors being featured. It really was like the person that I remember the most was this little woman. And I say little, she was shorter in stature, (laughs) but she was like the programming director or something. And she had this really unique voice. I mean, she had some insights again about like what was being made, what they were choosing to play and how they were being chosen. But it, it was a lot of behind the scenes people. I mean, Mark Goodman and Adam Curry, not Adam Curry. Sorry, Adam Goodman. Goodman. No, not Adam Goodman. Alan <laughs> Hunter. Oh my God, we are. We can't Wake even blame. Up. Are you hungover? I don't even know. Let's move on. I don't know on. if I can blame it on that. Anyways, Mark Goodman and Alan Hunter <laughs> were included, but they didn't say anything new, really. really. Yeah. Well, yeah. we hear them every week too, and every yeah. day on. Uh... Serious, so they're probably running out of new info they can provide. I want to ask you, Joe, mm-hmm. wasn't when we first started talking about this, you and I were like, wasn't there also a feature film that was supposedly being made? <sighs> That's what I had read when I was trying to find information about the documentary. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll look into it more, but I'm pretty sure it was like, uh, yeah, yeah I, I mean, set in the 80s about the beginning of MTV, yeah, like a fictionalized version of it. I think there was like a fame, I just looked at it this week and of course didn't write it down but there was like a famous director that was attached to it like a feature film director so who knows if that's coming out and who knows if that would be more interesting again I don't know I guess if they're not willing to get any deeper about this stuff then who cares but I don't know (laughs) again I guess in summation a little bit too short too superficial for me but definitely check it out if you have any interest because it's not like a waste of your time it's just keep your expectations low I will check it out as soon as I can. It's very hard to find information about it. I know it's going to air on A&E eventually. Mm -hmm. One day, Joe. Well, maybe we can move on to a review of something that I did get to attend. And that was the show last night at Potawatomi Casino. (laughs) And it was Carrie. You want me to say who it was? Yeah. <laughs> it was John Waite. John Waite performed. It yeah. It was really good. I would agree with that assessment. It was good. I It was a little different experience, I think, than we're used to. I haven't been to a concert at the casino, but he just came out right at 8 o'clock. He didn't have an opener, and then he did a few acoustic songs with one guy playing guitar and then brought out a band with a drums and a bass guitar, and they played for a good hour and 20 minutes mm-hmm. or so. It was good again i just think it was a different vibe than i'm used to at a concert we were seated at these tables not like in rows dave Dave described it as being at the casino in glow oh yes yes we were gina davis at Mm -hmm. one of those back tables that were kind of rounded yeah you probably yeah if you've ever been to a show at a casino i bet they're all the same we're like this at like a vegas showroom it's like you're sitting at a table like instead of in a row i kind of danced around a little bit in my seat it's like hard to really get into a show if you're not able to like move around and dance so Mm. But he played, so he played a lot of baby songs. He played Midnight Rendezvous. He played Back on My Feet Again. Yep. Mm-hmm. He played Every Time I Think of You by The Babies, which I thought was a big bust because mm-hmm. he didn't have the, the backup singer. Yeah. Every time I think of you. Why do that song if you're not going to have the backup singer? Because that was what made that song. Carrie did all the backups from her (laughs) booth. I don't think anybody could hear me, though. (laughs) 
It was a great setting. I thought yeah. really appreciated the acoustic mm. part at the beginning. I thought the band was really great. Yeah. They ended the set with a cover of Led Zeppelin's <laughs> Whole Lot of Love, which was really show offy, but yeah. I think the people ate it up. They also did all along the watchtower at one point. Yeah, you're right. It took me a minute to figure <laughs> out what it was. I don't know if you caught on right away. Yeah, they were really pandering to an audience that was maybe about 10 to 20 years older than us. Yeah, I think we were the youngest people there. I, I did see one young man who looked like he was dragged there by his mom (laughs) he kicked it off with change so that was good he obviously did missing you and he didn't close out with that which i was surprised Mm -hmm. at but i guess they wanted to close out on a big rocker he did not sing every step of the way which i think was disappointing for us and he sang a couple other ones like what was the one from the soundtrack to true romance oh yeah that was bizarre yeah i meant to look that up Mm -hmm. because that was like what 93 yeah, I mean, he when he said the soundtrack, you even like said a name of a movie out loud that you thought it was going to be, and it was not. And mm-hmm. we were both like, true oh, romance. Oh, yeah, about last night. Yeah, yes. So he did have a lot of songs on soundtracks, but he did not sing the one we thought he would. Yeah. Overall, I guess let's give it a, what do we want to rate it out of? One, I'd give him one a, to 10? I was going to say seven out of 10. Okay. Yeah, I think I'd be just about there too. It was not very expensive, so definitely worth the money that we spent. And it was a nice night. We, you know, we went out to dinner beforehand and then we stayed and played at the casino for a little while. So we had a good time, Joe. Yes, I had a great time. And I would see John Wayne again probably if it came to my town. Yeah, I think I would too. Mm-hmm. I definitely would. But I'd shout out every step of the way after every song yeah, so he would yeah. sing it that was a disappointment you know who was not disappointed were all the ladies in the front <laughs> row that were screaming their heads off at him yes and didn't he like hand something we're like did he just hand his hotel room key <laughs> to a woman yes he did hand something to a woman and we were very curious about it what it was i thought maybe after the fact maybe it was a guitar pick like sometimes people mm, do that you think mm, it was still no <laughs> Allegedly, don't sue us, John Wayne. (laughs) He still looks good. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, and you made the comment that his voice sounded really good, and it did. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about that. I was like, he's been doing this a long time, and he's not a young man. I looked him up last night. He's 67. Jeez. So for him to have his voice still and to be able to rock out like that, it was, yeah, it was impressive. So Mm -hmm. Empowering. Really fun. All right, so I have one more review, and that is for another movie that I saw at the Milwaukee Film Festival, and this is called Mystify, colon, Michael Hutchins. That's the title of the documentary, and it was directed by Richard Lowenstein, who directed many of the music videos for In Excess, including What You Need, Need You Tonight slash Meditate, and Never Tear Us Apart. So this one, Joe, I loved It was a great documentary and it was told in a really compelling way because it was not, there was no talking head interviews, but this was just voiceovers. Well, most of the footage was a lot of private home video and archive footage. Even there was some filmed interviews like historical interviews from, you know, TV shows that Michael Hutchins or other people had appeared on, but it was mostly like this intimate archive uh, footage. And then so the people from Michael's life would then be telling a voiceover over the footage. There was video that was provided by Kylie Minogue which I think I had a vague remembrance that they had been Mm -hmm. involved, but this tells a lot more about their relationship. Again, she provides video and gives a voiceover. Uh, Other people, some of the members of his band, some 
people from his life, like his sister and family, other family. So yeah, it was really wonderful. I'm not a huge fan of In Excess, so there was not a lot that I did not know about Michael Hutchins and his life, and it was really fascinating. He seemed like a very good dude, and so it's like really like kind of falling in love with him through this documentary, and then obviously, you know, his death, it's sort of like mourning him all over again. And apparently a deal for the NXS music to be used in this was only reached after the director showed the movie to Michael Hutchins's daughter, and she spoke to the band's management and record company to get that done. So I uh, had the blessing of his family. I'm not going to spoil some of the stuff that I learned because I think you should watch this documentary. But there's some interesting things that I don't think have really been talked about with some things that happened to him and maybe explain a little bit about his state of mind at the end of his life. Um, there was, again, a lot that I learned because I just didn't really know a lot about him. But I would really recommend this. And apparently going to show for one night in the U.S. on January 7th, 2020. So probably... I have plans that night. <laughs> one of those special event <laughs> happenings in a theater near you. Look, Take a look in early January and see if that's listed anywhere near you. And I would really recommend that you go out and check it out. I think that I will probably check it out based on what you said about it because you even talked about it after you saw it and I could tell that it was really moving. Yes. Um. Again, I was not a huge fan of In Excess. I just, you know, saw it listed in the film program and thought it looked interesting. Of course, any documentary about 80s music, I'd probably give it a check out and this was definitely worth worth it and probably was one of the best films I saw at the film festival. So. Oh, that's huge. Yeah, saying a lot. Yeah, I'm maybe a casual fan of In Excess. Mm-hmm. I know really just the hits. Yeah. But they're great hits. Yeah, they are. And I came out with a new appreciation for some of their smaller hits. I think, you know, hearing them again over this footage, mm-hmm. it kind of like gives a new meaning. So Awesome. I'll check it out. All right, Joe, that is it for all of our numerous reviews. Unless there's something else that you want to review that I don't know about. Um, how about the pillows in the guest bedroom? <laughs> they're a little too soft. Okay. We'll have to find you some new ones. Thank you for that feedback. You're welcome. (laughs) All right, Joe, we're going to pop into a new segment then, and it is called Coming Around Again. Oh, yay. (laughs) It's coming around again. So this is not a tribute to Carly Simon's music. (laughs) Although I do like uh, Carly Simon, a lot of her stuff. We discussed recently in the Pointer Sisters Unsung Heroes segment a couple weeks ago that I'm So Excited was remixed and reissued. So we started thinking about what other 80s songs were released twice and why. So we're going to talk today about some of the most successful reissues of the 80s. Okay, the first one uh, most successful is When I'm With You by Sheriff. I actually just heard this song in the car on the way up to Milwaukee Mm. the other day, and I didn't mind it. (laughs) So Sheriff was a Canadian arena rock band formed in 1979. The only album they had was their self-titled 1982 release, which produced two singles. The first, You Remind Me, reached 33 on the mainstream rock songs chart, and the second, When I'm With You, peaked at only 61 on the top 100 on June 11th, 1983. It was written by keyboardist Arnold Lanny for his girlfriend. It was the only gift he could give her on Valentine's Day because he was poor. (laughs) I think he was just a poor little musician. Mm -hmm. 
So she apparently liked it because she married him a couple years later. (laughs) And it was the last song that they added to this record in 1982. So the band broke up in 85, but in November of 1988, a program director at a station in Minneapolis, the same station that had broken Roxette's The Look, thanks to that foreign exchange student yep. that we're still trying to find. <laughs> yeah, we talked us. about that at some point. So this station began playing the song and other stations followed. Capitol Records re-released the song in its original form as a single and it hit number one on February 4th, 1989. I love a good comeback story. Yeah, and this is definitely one those you may remember the song from its final moments when lead singer freddie kersey holds the last note for 19.3 seconds which is 100 insane still holding it right now (laughs) so due to the renewed interest in the song and the band kersey and guitarist steve demarchi who had effectively left the music industry wanted to get the band back together but lanny and bassist wolf hassel no one had a normal name in this band (laughs) (laughs) they had moved on so kersey and demarchi formed a new band called alias with former members of heart and aliases, obviously most well-known for their number two hit, More Than Words Can Say, from 1990, which I didn't know that. <laughs> and they're kind of very similar songs. I know, it's crazy. I didn't know that either. So when I found this out, I was like, oh my gosh, you can totally hear this now. Like, when I'm with you, you know, the singer from that and the singer from More Than Words Can Say definitely sound <laughs> exactly alike. Like, they you are could the same sing, person. you could put yeah. them together and sing different yeah. parts of the, those two mm-hmm. songs and yeah. interchange them and it's, no one would know. No, correct. So, yeah, I agree with you, Joe. I like When I'm With You. It's a little sappy. Um, it's a little obvious, but I do like it. I don't mind it at all. Yeah, How fun is it to build out that? They. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. I won't sing. I tried to sing Total Eclipse of the Heart to Carrie yesterday, and she's like, Joe... I love you, but I don't know what you're singing. You were like mad that I couldn't recognize what song it was. And I was like, well, you're just reciting things. You're not giving any tone I to it. I was trying. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, it is just, it's funny how I someone just can just pick they a have song the, out. They have the power. Yeah. That DJ had the power mm-hmm. to revive a dead band, yeah. essentially. Crazy, super so crazy. All right, Joe. Well, the next uh, song that was reissued that we're going to talk about is At This Moment by Billy Vera. (laughs) And I have just found out when we were deciding who was going to go first that you apparently loathe this song. Carrie, I'm going to go shovel your driveway. (laughs) There's a lot of snow and ice on there. I'll be right back. (laughs) Wow. Well, let me tell you about this song. It was written by Billy Vera based on his new girlfriend's description of her last breakup. So he put himself in that guy's shoes and wrote the song, but he couldn't figure out how to end it until about 10 months later when that same girl broke up with him. (laughs) So (laughs) this girl did a number on Billy Vera. He wrote it in 1977 and actually Dionne Warwick and Olivia Newton-John both expressed interest in in recording it, I'm but never did. <laughs> 
So finally, Billy Vera and his band, The Beaters, recorded it live in January 1981 at the Roxy in L.A. and released it as a single later that year under the name Billy and the Beaters. They had had a minor hit with I Can Take Care of Myself, which went to 39, but at this moment was not as successful and only went to 79, peaking on October 3rd, 1981. So fast forward to 1985 and a writer for the television show Family Ties had written an episode that required a sad romantic song and just happened to go out for a night to a bar and saw Billy and the Beaters perform at this moment which fit perfectly for the scene he was imagining. The song was licensed to serve as the theme song for the romantic relationship between Alex P. Keaton and Ellen Reed played by uh, Michael J. Fox and Tracy Pollan and they would actually fall in love and get married after appearing on that show together. So it most famously plays over a scene of them dancing together and then Alex later drives after the character's train to convince her not to marry a different guy. Joe, I remember this very distinctly from my youth because this was one of the first times that I think I remembered swooning at a television show. I remember. I <laughs> remember the show, the episode. Yeah, yeah I thought you were going to say that the episode scared you because you had to look at <laughs> Billy Vera. He appeared in the episode. Oh, okay. <laughs> so NBC was getting letters asking what this song was and where people could get it, but it was not even available to purchase on the original record because the record company that had issued it had gone out of business. So Billy Vera went to a bunch of different record companies and guaranteed to them that if they bought the rights so that they could reissue it, the record would sell based on that song alone. And Rhino Records agreed, but the record wasn't even ready when reruns came along. It wasn't until Family Ties used the song again the next season after Ellen breaks up with Alex and he plays the song on a jukebox and cries. What did you think I would do at this moment? When you're standing before me With tears in your eyes Trying to tell me that you Have found you another And you just don't love me no more And this time the record was available and it shot up the charts, reaching number one on January 24th, 1987. Pretty incredible reissue story, Joe, but you are just shaking your head. I like the story. I don't like the song, but I think Billy Vera owes that guy at Family Ties like two cars because he bailed him out twice. I know. Think about now when, I mean, information is so available. Like if you, what song was that playing in? In a movie, Shazam like, it. Yeah, number one, Shazam it, or go look the apps the next day, and it'll be listed mm-hmm. on IMDb or wherever it is. You know, the fact that people were writing letters into NBC and saying like, "What is this song, and where can I get it?" Just amazing. Do they have to respond to those? <laughs> I don't know. It's a Maybe lot of busy did. work for NBC <laughs> I secretaries. So. I guess so. Silly Vera kept a lot of people busy <laughs> with this song, but I like 
this song, Joe. I maybe probably like it just because it has such good memories and is associated with that TV show. Family Ties was one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. And like I said, that that had a huge impact on me. Yeah, that's a touchstone for a lot of people our age, I believe. Yeah. But what's with the band name Billy Vera and the Beaters? That's gross. (laughs) What are they going to tour with the Strokes? (laughs) All right, let's move on. Okay. Another song that was re-released to greater success was Red Red Wine by UB40, which I hear every day of my life in those commercials for Tide Pens or something. Oh my god. Okay, so this was originally written and recorded by Neil Diamond in 1967. I don't think I've ever heard his version. I don't think so either. I'm not like clamoring. A reggae-inspired version of this song was recorded by Tony Tribe in 1969. Now that version I would listen to. (laughs) So here comes UB40. They're an English reggae and pop band. English (laughs) reggae. I don't know. It's just something weird about it. So they formed in 1978, and UB40 was only aware of the Tony Tribe version because they're too cool for school. I guess so. We don't know who Neil Diamond is. Um, So they recorded a cover for its 1983 album of covers called Labor of Love. UB40 was pretty successful in the UK, and its first eight singles reached the top 40, and this went to number one in the UK. It peaked at 34 in the US in March 1984. The US single version released at this time ran about three minutes and omitted the toasted verse by Astro, the group's vocalist and trumpet player, which starts Red Red Wine, You Make Me Feel So Fine. You know the drill. <laughs> yeah, we'll put that in there so people know exactly what we're talking okay, about. Good. Red Red Wine, You Make Me Feel So Fine. You keep me rocking all of the time. Red Red Wine, You Make Me Feel So Grand. I feel a million dollar when you're just in my hand. So toasted basically means rapping or chanting in the reggae universe. So there's your... Ah, I thought that was very interesting. New info for the day. New term. Well, you know who wasn't feeling it? Were pop stations in 1983. (laughs) They were like... So that takes us to June 1988 when UB40 performed the song at Nelson Mandela's 70th birthday tribute, a massive concert staged at Wembley Stadium in London and was broadcast across the world, although in the U.S. most of the political content was censored. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So go read the wiki page for all the crazy drama. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I was going to put into this outline that I was like, well, that's a whole tangent. So mm-hmm. <laughs> please just go read that Wikipedia yeah. page. We'll wait. <laughs> So that reintroduced the song to the world and a program director in Phoenix included the song in a bring back section that highlighted a song that should have been a hit. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he played the full five minute version with the uh, rap and UB40 was in the midst of recording another covers album and the record company originally wanted the radio station to stop playing Red Red Wine in favor of the forthcoming songs. Um, but after it reached number one in the Phoenix area, the record company relented. And it went to number one on the Hot 100 on October 15th, 1988. So, Joe, what are your overall thoughts on Red Red Wine? Tide commercials aside. I just don't like it. (laughs) I don't care for many UB. I don't like any UB40 songs. I agree with you. I For some reason, Red Red Wine is one that I can't stand. I think it got super overplayed at this time in 1988. I remember hearing it constantly and not liking it then. And so I've never really revisited it and tried to form a different opinion. So I do like the story of the fact that, you know, the second time around, it was the full version with the toasted verse 
that um, that people actually like. Radio programmers didn't have a very high opinion of what people would think of things like mm-hmm. that. So I like that I got a second chance and went to number one and proved some people wrong, but I don't particularly care for it. So it doesn't but matter. I feel the same way, but yeah. I do appreciate a story like yeah. that. It's always very interesting to find out the reasons and the segment we're doing, even if you don't love the song. Yep. I think it's cute. So a last um, one that we're going to talk about today is Moni Moni by Billy Idol, which was, of course, originally recorded by Tommy James and the Shondells, which reached number three. Billy Idol originally recorded this as a studio version in 1981 for his first solo recording after he left the new wave band Generation X. It was on an EP that also included Dancing With Myself. And Dancing With Myself, I found out, was actually recorded by his band Generation X and remixed and re-released as a Billy Idol solo single. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So Moni Moni was released at that time, but only reached 107. However, along with its B-side Baby Talk, it did reach number seven on the Dance Club Songs chart. I think we forgot to mention, Joe, when we did the Back in Time segment where we kind of talked about different charts that our friend of the podcast Michael had highlighted that sometimes the dance club charts in the early 80s were like the dumping grounds for songs that were unclassifiable pre the alternative charts so maybe some of the songs that were hitting the dance charts weren't exactly dance songs but were just songs that they couldn't find Mm -hmm. any other place for it was uh, mildly successful on the dance club chart But in 1985, Billy Idol was putting together a compilation album called Vital Idol. Perfect. Yeah. (laughs) That essentially remixed songs from his first two albums and the Don't Stop EP. So this album was only released in the United Kingdom, but contained a new mix of Moni Moni dubbed the Downtown Mix. However, that album was not released in the United States until 1987. And so when it was released here, Billy recorded yet another version of Moni Moni. He really loves the song, I guess. And this was a live recording. So that was what was released as a single in the U.S. to promote the Vital Idol album in 1987. And this live version went all the way to number one on November 21st, 1987. And it was Billy Idol's only number one chart hit. Crazy, considering that I think a lot of his songs, probably ones that didn't even make it very high on the charts, are now some of the most played songs on 80 Station. Mm-hmm. White Wedding included, which you mentioned earlier. Eyes Without a Face. Yeah. And uh, coincidentally, Moni Moni displaced Tiffany's I Think We're Alone Now from the top spot, which of course was another Tommy James and the Shondells cover. So a little bit of chart trivia for you there. Um, they also ended up side by side in the year end countdown. Oh, wow, Joe, breaking out dun, some dun, facts dun. there. <laughs> Good for you. And Carrie, did you notice two of the songs you picked for the segment? The live version went to number one. Yes, I did notice that. Oh. <laughs> What's the opposite of dun dun dun? 
Yeah, so Joe, these four were the ones that I could find that when reissued hit number one. So I guess these are the most successful, as we said, chart reissues of the 1980s and lots of different stories about why they were reissued. Pretty interesting. I thought there was some really good stuff in there. Yeah, can't wait to see what others you uncover. Are you finding these from your Top 40 Hits book by Billboard? I am. The Joel Whitburn book, he has a specific legend, or I'm trying to think so of the word. To, no, like, notation? Yes, notation for songs that were reissued. But this, that one is only um, for Top 40 Hits. So we actually have another book that I'll use in the future for some songs that didn't hit the Top 40, but were reissued. So we'll talk about less successful <laughs> reissues in the future when we revisit this great all right well that wraps it up for today Mm -hmm. it sure does joe carrie and i have to get ready for what do you what would you call it a halloween dance party yeah i i'm i'm curious to see what it's going to be like i think there's going to be it's a tribute band there's a whole lineup that we're going to see tonight at a place so i think it'll be more like a concert atmosphere so Mm -hmm. hopefully there will be a lot of fun dancing and people having a good time if someone sings billy vera and the beaters (laughs) I'm out of there. (laughs) All right. I'll keep that in mind. Talk to us on our Facebook page. Um, We'll put some polls up this week and some posts so that you can comment and talk to us. It's been a while. It took a break. So it felt weird to not be on the Facebook page as much. But now you will see us there again. We'll put some pictures up too from this weekend, Joe. We took some good ones at John Waite last night and we'll have to take some tonight. I believe you will be in costume. I will be in costume. (laughs) And it's 80s related. Wait until you see this one, folks. So anyways, we'll uh, leave you with our directive, as always, to be kind to us, be kind to others, but most importantly, be kind to yourself. Please do that. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.